Hello, welcome to the Beverly Hills Police Department. To continue this message in English, press one pound. If you have homeless people on your lawn, press two star. So what brings you to California, Axel? Vacation? I'm looking for a killer. One, please. We got some evidence that points to one the world. Thank you. Thank you. You mean Rufus Rabbit has gone berserk? You got yourself in the middle of a federal investigation. That guy killed a police officer. He killed a friend of mine. You just keep him out of my face and out of my park. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a tremendous surprise for Mr. DeWall to have me standing right next to him right now. You know, right now I can feel his body tingling. Bring that man down. Code red on the spider. Hold on tight. Axel. Hey, hey. hey. Officers, I want this man arrested. I'm sure you can explain everything, or maybe you can't explain anything. You're going back to Detroit. You've got to turn yourself in, man. Why is it so hard for you on the scene? There's something rotten going on at that park. Kill him. You look, you look Thank at your you skin and your hair. And then finally you have black hash poopies, which are totally retro, which I love. You, you put a really good package together. And now, when did that come out? Part of the Real Change Movie Podcast. Thank you for hitting the download, and welcome to another episode of When Did That Come Out? Today we are looking at May of 1994, Eddie Murphy's Beverly Hills Cop 3. I am Charlie Stabile, joined, as always, by William Ring. Will, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, let's start off this discussion about Beverly Hills Cop 3. Um, back when, So back when I was a kid, and these movies were the ones that I would watch, these cop movies, because there was an abundance of cop movies, cop franchises, uh, you name it. There's really only so many plots that you can do in cop movies, I've, I've noticed. Die Hard is kind of kind of um, free to do what they want with the terrorist plots, but they, all, they kind of also, the terrorists always seem to want to do things that other cop movies want to do. And with Beverly Hills Cop, I've for the, for the trilogy, I've broken it down to so. In the first movie, it's basically money and drugs. In the second movie, it's guns. And then in the third movie, we're back to money, but it's funny money. It's fake. Like Lethal Weapon, they did the drugs, they did the guns. And the only thing that's weird about Lethal Weapon uh, as a series is the fourth movie, they did slavery, which uh, always just seemed kind of out of field uh, for a cop movie. Um, well, we've talked about not, not to talk about the other movies, but we've talked about Martin Best and, and first Beverly Hills Cop. Um, what, what, what are your what are your memories of this franchise or your experiences with it? Um, as a kid, I loved um, my mom used to talk about how when they put Beverly Hills Cop on the tape, which was recorded back to previous season reference. Once again, bootleg both Beverly Hills Cop movies in the 80s. Um, I would, I, because 
by the time it came out on video, I mean, I don't know for sure. Like, if the movie's uh, out in 84, what is it? It's probably out on video probably a year later. 84? Something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. uh, she said, yeah, as soon as the Pointer Sisters came on, like, I would come unglued as a kid. Uh, so, Beverly Hills Cop was, and it's a good call. I, I absolutely love Beverly Hills Cop too. I watch that. Up, I wore that tape out. I absolutely loved watching that um, as a kid. That was one that I just went to a lot. And then, of course, like I mean, once once I had seen like Lethal Weapon and Die Hard, it, things kind of shifted. But I always really loved those two. Martin Brest. Martin Dress is a he's a funny director. Like this guy who's directed like a couple of my. Well, one of my absolute favorite movies of all time, *A Midnight Run*, absolute all-time favorite. Mm-hmm. And yet, I think, I think he was a guy who like made a movie like every few years. Like he really took time off in between them. And I, I heard this. This is one of the best criticisms of Martin Bress, where it's like they sent him off to make a movie, and he came back with a completely different thing. But uh, you know, magically, it would it would work. Like it would work. Not always. Like I mean, Scent of a Woman is not doesn't rest on Martin Brest's amazing direction. That's a movie that's built off of a character right. alone, and it's kind of shown. Like when Gili's kind of the last, the, the it, it makes sense by the time we see Gili. It's like yeah, this guy's pretty good, but you know, if if the, if the elements aren't there, this guy really knows how to careen one off the cliff. But then you have someone like Tony Scott, who is at the height of his power. Really, like I mean, like and granted, like it, I, it's it's debatable if he if you think he's higher in the '90s, but obviously he, he does a lot of big movies in the '90s. But when he's coming right off of Top Gun, like he is massive. What he the spin he puts on visually, and then what Faltmeyer does with the music and two, these were really these were two really cool movies. And then the the and not to bury the lead, it's also Eddie Murphy at the height of his power. Just. I always kind of looked at Beverly Hills Cop as like the like the original version of the Mission Impossible franchise in terms of how they they brought in different directors to give their own spin on the series because and, and there were always directors that are pretty you know among film geeks well known you get Martin Brest doing the first one then Tony Scott doing the second one and here you have John Landis and the thing that's interesting I always thought about John Landis as a choice is for me, John Landis is pretty much done uh, by the time he does Beverly Hills Cop 3. You know, because John Landis had a couple of really good movies in the 80s. Then that Twilight Zone thing happened with Vic Morrow. And his career never really recovered. I mean, this is the guy that directed The Blues Brothers. I don't know if that. See, Trading Places. Trading Places comes after Twilight Zone. So he's. And, and so does Coming to America. Same year. So those, like. Well, coming to America is, yeah. But I agree with the premise that by the time it's Beverly Hills Cop Three, he's done. That's seventies. I'm talking like after Twilight Zone, like because you're. I I'm halfway there with your premise because by the time Beverly Hills Cop Three comes out, that guy is not the director that had done the the, an amazing three pack of in a row of Animal House, Blues Brothers, and American where American Werewolf in London. That's not the guy anymore that is directing Beverly Hills Cop three, because and the thriller video, right, and and the black and white video. Let's not leave that on the shelf. Let's just bring out all the guns. Um, but the uh, but I'm saying like he, he like he he was like a phenomenal film director. Once upon a time, right, right, 
Yeah, when your movie after this is the stupids. Yes, I don't know what to. I don't. Oh, know, that's right. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> oh, I always forget he did that. And then, uh, and then he would do uh, his brothers two thousand, and it's just like, oh man, like yeah. what happened here? Yeah. Yeah, and so this movie, Beverly Hills Cop three, is always kind of an anomaly for me because there's a three year gap in between the releases of the first two movies, and then there's a seven year gap between two and three. It was almost as if uh, Eddie. And I truly believe this. I think Eddie was done with the character after two. Because he started branching out and doing his own things. Like he directed Harlem Nights. Uh, he a- actually ended up going back and doing the sequel to 48 Hours, which is weird after two Beverly Hills Cop movies to go back and do the Reggie Hammond character. And then he finds himself in the lull where he can't get a hit to save his life. Not that Harlem Nights was a hit or anything, but you know, 48, another 48 Hours did pretty well, uh, despite the quality of the movie. And then... He, cr- he cranks out like Boomerang, the distinguished gentleman in these movies that just didn't do anything. And so and I always kind of look at that like I look at why Bruce Willis agreed to do a fourth and fifth Die Hard is that I think Eddie Murphy felt that he needed a hit. And what better way to do it than to bring back his most famous character? Only difference is it's been in seven years and there's a big difference between 1987 and 1994. And. Beverly Hills Cop 3, this was an idea that, that had been tossed around for a while. Um, I don't know if you've, if, if you've looked into it, like some of the other ideas that they had for this. Oh, I always yeah. remember the idea of of them having to go to London to save Bogomil. That's the one I always remember. as Like he'd been taken kidnapped by terrorists or something. <laughs> at a, a cop's and, convention. <laughs> like, at a, yeah. And it just, this, I always thought this sounded wrong because I'm like, well, okay, so so let me get this straight. So Taggart and Rosewood are going to fly out to London, and Foley's just going to join them, like from from Detroit. That's the problem with Beverly Hills Cop as a franchise is that they have to constantly convolute ways to get Eddie Murphy, so Foley, to come back to L.A. They, they like, how do we do it? Let's how do we do it? It's like, it's like getting people back on the island in Jurassic Park. There's a perfect quote that sums it up. 1989, Eddie Murphy's asked about a third a third movie. 1989. He says, "Quote and I'm I'm gonna there's gonna be a bomb dropped in here. So if uh, you're sensitive to it, then I don't know. Speed ahead of 30 seconds. There's no reason to do it. I don't need the money, and it's not gonna break break any new ground. How often can you have Axel Foley talk fast and get into a place he doesn't belong? But these motherfuckers are developing scripts for it. They're in pre-production. The only reason to do a cop three is to beat the bank." And Paramount ain't going to write me no check as big as I want to do something like that. In fact, if I do Cop 3, you can safely say, ooh, he must have a lo- he must have got a lot of money. Yeah, he got $15 million. He got a lot of money to do this movie. And the, the release date, I, I, I remember like coming out in May. Uh, it was when I first started discovering these movies. And I mean, I'll be honest. I thought I love the trailer for this movie. It's... Not edited like a Beverly Hills Cop trailer, but the the original trailer for this movie is incredible. Like it looks like a it looks like a blast, and like I said, I feel like he he needed a hit. And I've I've loved I've loved discussing this movie with people over the years because the real contention that I find that people have with this movie is that, and I actually agree with this. The first two Beverly Hills Cop movies, I don't really consider them action movies. I consider them comedies first, and they have action in them. 
And then Beverly Hills Cop 3, I always find to be the exact opposite. This is an action movie with little bits of humor tossed in. And from what I remember is that Eddie, and this is, don't want to you know go into David Spade territory because that's right around when that happened. But um, Eddie was kind of jealous of, this is a rumor, but he was jealous of Denzel Washington. And he wanted to basically be like Denzel, which I think is hilarious because there is one moment in this movie where I think he acts exactly like Denzel. And I, I feel like he stole this right, right, right from, right from Denzel. It's when he points the machine gun at one of the guards heads and he goes, Hey, 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 and he just kind of does that. And it's like, that's, that's a Denzelism. And Eddie, the, like there are these scenes in the first two movies, like where he pulls the wool over people's eyes. Like, uh, like when he does, um, you know, when he sneaks into the warehouse and pretends to be security and completely improvises that scene or or when he has the conversation with that lady at the uh, at the Harrow Club about, you know, Victor Maitland having herpes simplex 10. And then the second movie, he's got the fake bomb. But if they're actually Billy's pills in the bag or the or the, the someone craft in the pool, stuff like that, there is nothing like that in this movie. Um, and a lot of people had a problem with that. And the thing is, the weird thing is, I never really did because the way to convolute Axel Foley back into L.A., it's a common theme through all three movies. And and I like that they kept it for this one, although for this one it's much more personal. He always goes back because of revenge. Somebody that's close to him either gets hurt or gets killed. In the first movie, it's his best friend. The second movie, it's Bogomil. And then the third movie, I mean, Jesus, I used to hate watching this scene as a kid, but they kill Inspector Todd, uh, who was one of the best characters from the other two movies. And that I always like kind of rationed it in my head that he just completely changed his whole demeanor changed. But the movie does have this weird little tonal inconsistency with that where he's, you know, he's out for revenge and he's pissed as hell, but he's still, still got little bits of jokey jokiness in him. And I read that John Landis said that like Eddie, Eddie Murphy was almost anti-comedy in that movie. Uh, in let's the read third film. Let's read the quote. Let's read the quote. Oh, you get you have it. Cop yeah. three was a very strange experience. The script wasn't any good, but I figured, so what? I'll make it funny with Eddie. But then I discovered on the first day when I started giving Eddie some shtick, he said, "You know, John Axel Foley's an adult now. He's not a wise ass anymore." So with Beverly Hills Cop three, I had this strange experience where he was very professional, but he just wasn't funny. I would try to put him in funny situations, and he would find a way to step around them. It's an odd movie. There are things in it I like, but it's an odd movie. That's fair. I definitely think it's the odd duck uh, in the franchise. Uh, this is where I feel like Eddie Murphy truly tried to, to, to take Axel Foley and make him basically an action star. And, I, and he has action moments in the other two. Like, I always remember... Um, in the second movie when they're, when they're in the gun shootout and he, and he rolls over a car like he, he literally does like a forward roll and it's just very theatrical and big and but that's for me maybe as much as it gets like he hangs off the truck full of cigarettes but he has to I mean that's you know he's he's undercover but in this movie uh, and I guess we can just talk about this now there is a sequence in this movie that I absolutely love it's probably my favorite part of the movie but the problem with it, I find all these years later, is that it's in the wrong movie. It's the spider sequence where he's in the ride and the, the, you know, the people at Wonderworld are trying to 
get it to come off and the two kids are in danger. And then Axel Foley starts basically doing the greatest Cirque du Soleil performance I've ever seen with him jumping up and down all over this ride, even as it's moving. And, and it's like, what, like, it's really cool. But at the same time, it's like Axel Foley, what's he doing? Like it, it's, it's, I don't think it's as ridiculous as John McClane's surf, the jet scene in Die Hard four, but it's the equivalent. And I, 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 he tried to make him and do like a real superhero type cop. And Axel Foley never was that for me. Um, even, even in the second movie, because the second movie goes a little bit off the rails, but I love the second movie. I love the look of it. I always thought that the second movie was the most movie of the franchise, and it's because of Tony Scott. Um, and I certainly think it's one of his best films. I don't think there's a single part of that movie where uh, Axel Foley isn't wearing his Detroit Lions jacket. You know, it's like his costume, basically. So that's what you get with Tony Scott being a very visual director. And when I watched it, I actually watched it, uh, the third movie earlier this morning. I paid attention to how long he had jacket on and it's not long. It's about a half hour. And then he starts wearing street clothes. And it's, 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 it's just really weird because I, 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 there's a very specific look I think of for Axel Foley and it's not here. Uh, let's talk about casting for a little bit. There's a big, there's a big person missing here. John Ashton. He, He's not here. Uh, and even as a kid, this was bothersome. It's like, cause he was like Beverly Hills cop is a, tr- is a trio. Like you've got this great little funny action comedy with, with Eddie Murphy, but there's this buddy movie going on over here with Billy Rosewood and John Taggart played by judge Reinhold and John Ashton. And it's hilarious. Like it's great. The dialogue they have, but for whatever reason, and as it turns out, <laughs> it's because he was shooting a little big league, uh, John Ashton had to pass on this movie because they couldn't basically agree to a budget. And he ended up taking a little big league and he had to be written out of this movie. I mean, he's literally written out some of the dialogue that Axel has with Hector Elizondo's character. Flint is the exact same dialogue, apparently from the original script that he would have had with tag Eggert. And that part is frustrating. Although I will say, I do think Hector Elizondo does a very good job in this movie, but I mean, he's, he's, Usually, always reliable, and he has an he has an, a different chemistry, but it's a pretty good chemistry. And there is a great little cameo that I that I, I really commend John Landis for putting in here, where you actually see the fishing trip picture from Beverly Hills Cop Two on Billy's desk, uh, with Ronnie Cox, who also isn't here, and John Ashton. Um, I mean, I, I assume I, I'm sure it bothers you too that Ashton isn't in this thing. Uh. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I equate it to if, um, in sports, if your teams, if you have a good player on a team that suffers an injury, like he's a good, good player, like a, maybe he's just a good role player and you got to get somebody just to kind of fill the void. You know, they're not going to give you a lot of points, but they'll just kind of keep things afloat. That's Hector Elizondo doing this. He's all right. Like, I mean, he, yeah. there's absolutely nothing special about him. And that's, what's really sad. It's really sad. It's just it's yeah because because then they turn. I, I agree because he, he he's not he's not the perfect. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 no. I'm done. Go ahead. I was going to say like there's a great yin and yang to uh, Taggart and Rosewood. Uh, there's like like because the banter's great, but like the character dynamic is really good. Like Taggart doesn't want to take risks, 
very uh, straightforward and does, wants to do things by the book. He doesn't like venturing out like the first two movie shows. Billy is the same, but he has an itch. And that permeates through the entire series. And that was really that was always fun to watch Taggart go along with what Billy wanted to do because Billy wanted to help Axel or, or Billy had or believed Axel. Like the way Billy comes around in the first movie is great. And and Tag just realizes that he has no choice. So I, I do miss that dynamic. But I like I said, it goes through the whole trilogy. I've always liked the arc that Billy has through all three movies. Because it seems like he just keeps getting bigger as a character in terms of what he's doing in the movie. Like in the first movie, he basically just seems like a, a glorified beat cop. In the second movie, it's basically the same, but we find out he has this huge arsenal. Like something that really hasn't aged well, but he like, I, I believe there's even a Rambo in, in the second movie. And by the time we get to the third movie, he basically controls all of Southern California. And this is one that you shouldn't have in this type of, of job. And then they, they bring that back from the first movie where Billy doesn't believe Axel, but he, I love these little scenes. He will stick up for him if he gets into trouble. Like, like we get to see that friendship develop a little bit more, but of course it definitely feels like, uh, somebody's missing. Let's talk about the, the Beverly Hills cop villains as a whole. Cause we've talked about Victor Maitland before. It's not a very good villain. Uh, yeah, I remember you used to call him a low rent Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> uh, that's the actor. I mean, Stephen Burkoff is exactly that. Steve Burkoff. Like, yeah. 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 Like, like, that's one thing that's kind of sucks about Beverly Hills cop as a franchise is that, um, I never really liked the villains in this thing. Uh, um, as opposed to die hard or lethal weapon, or at least the first two lethals, like there, there wasn't like, Oh my God, like this villain is amazing. And that's why I think that's, that's why that's one of the reasons why I never consider it. Um, the first two, at least an action movie is because I always say like an action movie is only as good as its villain. And the villains in those two movies I mean, with maybe Brigitte Nielsen. Like, she's she's awesome. pretty cool, but I always she is awesome. Well, hold on, hold, hold. She is, but she's in the wrong movie. She's she she's she's playing a Bond villain in that second movie, and she's great, but it definitely feels out of place. And the and this is this is the thing that I always liked about the third movie. This is my favorite villain of the of the franchise. I always liked him because he's a smarmy piece of shit like that. That's what he is. And the way that Timothy Carhart delivers his lines is just solid. He does a really good job with this thing. And Brigitte Nielsen, um, who I believe is the second best villain, I wish she had been the main villain of the second movie. Like, cause that's the thing with the second movie. There's too many villains. Uh, you got Dean Stockwell. You got what's his face from Dawes Boot. You've, you've got uh, Russ Fielding, I remember, the, from Die Hard 2. He's in there. I, it just you've got the you've got Lutz like bothering Billy and, and John and it's just like oh my god like there's just too many of them and I always liked this movie's take on the villains more because of it's a lot more simplified and like the first movie the first movie is a very simple revenge movie and the second movie as many times as I've seen it and I love Beverly Hills Cop 2 I still don't understand what the hell's going on in that movie like I get the gun thing but the alphabet crimes I, I definitely feels like there's a scene or two that's missing that could have summed all this up and they try several times with exposition 
uh, spoken by the characters in unnecessary situations to explain the story. And still, still don't quite get it. So that's something that I always liked about this movie more. Um, Will, do you think $35 is unreasonable price for a park entry? No. In 1994? Uh, probably not. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of uh, if I'd been to any uh, amusement parks by then that I could recollect. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Can't really answer that. I would like, probably compared say to what they safe. cost today. Yeah, like it, like I always thought it was interesting that that Axel got a little upset about that. Thirty five dollars. Like, dude, like how many times do you come back to L.A.? You know, thirty five dollars is even in 1994. Like. That's incredibly reasonable um, for, for, for this whole thing. Uh, do you think that this movie would have been better had they done that London plot? Um, they need the money. Like, the budget's a big problem. The budget is the problem. Because you, they didn't have enough money, like, to really do what they needed to do, like, that's why things look cheap in this. That spider sequence, I get you, man. It's fun. It looks all right. It's it's and when their action sequences in Beverly Hills Cop movies are are always a treat, but it looks terribly cheap at times. It looks very cheap. Uh, the backgrounds. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. it's it's a rear it, projection or mm-hmm. blue screen or whatever they do with it. Whatever they did with Eddie for those inserts, it, you know, it's. This is why, like, when I was looking through it, and I was fascinated. Like, you know, they want Bruckheimer want to do it. Hell, they were. I don't even know why. Like. We'll take it to New York. I don't know why. What what movie is that? I don't know what Beverly Hills Cop movie needs to be in New York. But you know the the whole thing of like it ends up being. Well, I'm trying because I've seen I've seen two different figures. This thing says fifty, and then I've heard other places where like it could have been as high as seventy. Is I what have the, too. The budget could have been. And the other thing that's reflected in that is. All right. I know you like old boy as Ellis, you know, fine. He, when you look at this guy's kind of filmography, this guy is kind of like your third or fourth choice. If, and I'm not saying, I don't, I don't know who I, I can't tell you right off hand who would have been better. Cause a lot of times I, I hate when the answer is automatic. Well, it's gotta be somebody's already famous. No, you, there could have been somebody else out there that, you know, we, we weren't aware of that could have been better, but that guy's reliable. He's a great menacing douchebag in Thelma and Louise. He's the whole reason that movie starts is that mm-hmm. dude like with um, his menacing portrayal. So that that's fine. I um um when I when I look at this and I just kind of read through the other choices, like some of these other ideas were pretty cool. Robert Town. Wanted to do a movie with Axel Foley dealing with celebrity status as a cop. Interesting. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a couple of these England ones, which are fascinating. Eddie Murphy teaming up with Sean Connery. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. Eddie no, Murphy. I'm glad they do that. <laughs> well, you would have loved this one even more than Eddie Murphy teaming up with John Cleese. Yep. Mm hmm. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that one. What about the uh, what about the Crocodile Dundee crossover? That's I love that Murphy was like no, I, I like that Murphy kind of yeah. shut that one down because that does. Do sound we need like two it. fish out of waters, right? Then you have like then you have stuff they were going to use like you know the they're going to bring in the Paul Reiser character getting killed and that would be his motivation to go over there. Um, 
there was um because I forget, like I've only seen Black Rain like twice, but that is like that whole plot line is a bit similar to, to Black Rain, but I don't think anyone would have cared. If it had been close to Black Rain, black people still no. liked Black Rain. They could have done that, but it's it's really tough because you it's it's this unfortunate sequence of events where you've got a star that's I mean, it's hard to say he's on a decline, but it's I guess he kind of was. I mean, you look at no, the No, he was. The th- he was. Here, here's the part that gets really freaking irritating when it looks when you look at budgets in a box office. Okay, if you compare a box office number to its budget, if the box office is higher than the budget, it's a success. Well, maybe, but then there's this whole moving target of oh, the marketing budget. Well, that's not really disclosed. So, how can we say th- this movie's a hit over here? But this movie's not, oh, because of the marketing budget. that That's not really revealed. The marketing budget no. and all this stuff is not really revealed. So, like, you look at these movies, like, Distinguished Gentlemen. Like, I didn't realize that, like, these movies actually, like, when you just compare strictly box office to budget, they're okay. They did all right. I don't know what now. The, the part that also is this unknown is what is the studio expectation for an Eddie Murphy movie in the early 90s? I don't know. I, I maybe they were expecting it was always going to be like Beverly Hills Cop two, from that point forward, or Trading Places, or like for another comedy coming to America. It's difficult to say, but um, well, it's it's interesting because it's not like he didn't have bad movies in the eighties, you know. But even those movies made money. Like I'm always shocked at the box office take for Golden Child, but right. that movie made a ton of money, and that movie is far maybe his worst movie. It's it's pretty bad. So I get that. Um, th- that that seventy million. If it was really seventy million, that is really high for a movie in nineteen ninety four. Specifically, like for a Beverly Hills Cop movie, because these are typically pretty simple movies. And and then this just ballooning budget. Because I mean, that's the whole thing too, is that they have to film in L.A. It's it's very, very obvious if they're not filming there. Right. And uh, I'm pretty sure the tax incentives aren't desirable uh for them to do something like that not to mention you're constructing uh, a theme are, park which constructing something like that like that's going to be a budget like smash oh, is constructing like, something like that i was reading up on it because i was always kind of fascinated with wonder world um and it turns out that it was paramount had a, a theme park out there called great america i've, I've never heard of this i remember Car- uh, paramount used to have carowinds but i've never heard of this but but i know that they're not using all of this theme park for wonder world because uh what is that right alien attack i mean that's earthquake right you know they just added in those those like things you know those alien shooting things um i really like i, I thought this was interesting too I, I never realized this before but this was written by steven d'souza yeah <laughs> who wrote uh die hard and commando and this certainly feels more like that <laughs> than than the beverly hills cop movies but like it does it's it doesn't quite seem like one of the things that he wrote you know because there is a diehard quality to this movie it's just that Foley can can leave whenever he wants and he just keeps going back you know because he's that upset um uh, there are there are a couple of things that i i do not like about this movie one no jerry bruckheimer like it doesn't feel like a jerry bruckheimer movie you know because it's not like jerry bruckheimer directs no he's just a producer but you know, a, especially in the 80s and, and the 90s, for that matter, you know a Jerry Bruckheimer movie when you see it because it, it, it looks it's a very specific kind of tone and feel. Uh, Faltermeyer. No, they use his oh theme. Oh, my God. And, this is the worst. But, this yeah, is we one, haven't talked about the, the theme. sound gore, the soundtrack. 
like like Foltermeyer's score is good enough. But then you've got the Pointer Sisters, Patti LaBelle, like just that rogues gallery of great artists. The the Bob Seger song from Beverly Hills Cop Two is that's his best song. I'm sorry, old time rock and roll can suck it. Shakedowns where it's at, and this movie doesn't really doesn't have any good songs. Like it's just a bunch of crap. I remember like sampling the tunes on iTunes once because I was I was like, well, I'm a completist. I'd like to have the third one. And then I li- started listening to the samples. I'm like, oh, I remember that. In excess has yeah, got the just, track right. It's in excess that has got the kind of like the headline the, track for it. Is that the track that that's playing during the the, the, the car chase sequence at the beginning? I don't. I, it might be. I'm not even. I'm not even sure. I didn't go back and listen. But when I saw in excess, like, I was like, man, is that where? Yeah. We're, is that how far we've fallen from Bob Seger? Yeah. Is that with seventy million? Like with all the other crap that like we've had to pay for? This is what we can afford. Yeah, oh, they couldn't. Man. They couldn't do better than that. Um, but there are, I mean, there are things that are really, that, that I really do. Like. Well, hold on. One more thing I don't like, because I always forget about this. Uh, and this is a, a trait that's more current now than it was then. But they don't show the title of the movie until the very end. The movie just starts. Like Paramount logo, and then here's the problem. There's no Eddie Murphy. There's no Beverly Hills Cop. Both of the first two movies had awesome opening credit sequences. Uh, the first movie did it over the, uh, over the like, the, just the, t- the city of Detroit. With the heat is on by Glenn Fry, awesome. Uh, Shakedown, Bob Seger, Eddie Murphy just getting dressed and like admiring himself in the mirror and driving a cool car, and like that was great. It's just here's your movie, and I, the only thing, reason I can even think why they did that is because that first scene is about as serious as this movie gets, and and it's 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 pretty intense with with Inspector Todd, um, but and that's what that's what gets the movie going, and from there on out. I mean, there are things in this movie that I just absolutely love. Uh, I love that the car chase itself isn't very good, but I love the comedy of him commandeering a car from a chop shop and the car just systematically falling apart as he keeps going with the car chase. I absolutely love that. I think that's a really inspired bit. Um, this the, first, this first annihilator scene. too. Let's talk about this first. Which scene? first scene? Oh, the opening scene. Go ahead. Go ahead. Not the dancing shit. Yes, it, it's okay. it's no. It needs to be spoken because like this first scene is a microcosm of where this movie has problems and it's une- it's tonally uneven. Mm-hmm. It wants to do. It's like it's a rated R movie that wants to be PG thirteen, but the problem is you're rated R, so that audience isn't here for that movie. A PG thirteen audience. When you get this opening scene, like one thing Beverly Hills Cop movies do is yeah, you have you have Eddie Murphy doing a ton of improv. Which, I'm sorry, I know it got nominated for Best Screenplay. Screw you, that's Eddie's. That's Eddie's nomination. Screw you. That is all him. That is all him. I get, I'm, that just, that just makes me laugh in a lot of these movies where you can clearly tell the improv is what carried these movies, carried a certain movie, regardless. The action was always very serious. Treated very seriously. And then in the beginning, it's like, yeah, these are the dudes we're going to do this raid on. And then guess what? We need to get Endo and the one, the other like random like secondary thug dudes from action movies. Let's have a little dance. Let's do a little dance to the to Diana Ross and the Supremes. What? What? What is? The, why are we doing this? Like, are we supposed to like? Are we trying to build something? Like uh, uh, empathy for these guys when they all get smoked by why ever the heck Ellis is there? Why does that guy need to be there? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that because. It's you know even though I think this plot makes sense, there are little things like that that I don't get. So Eddie, the whole reason Axel is there 
is to bust an illegal car theft ring. That's it. But he actually stumbles across Ellis DeWald, who is there to receive paper to create fake money. And I like this is a this is a hell of a business for a bunch of car theft guys. Like, okay, so we're gonna like illegal chop shop. We're gonna steal cars and tear them apart and sell them for money. Oh, and we also dabble in uh, fake currency. <laughs> like, that's a lot of hats to wear. So I always thought that was weird too. Like, like, like they went to, okay, because now you got me on a tangent. So they steal a wallet from a guy in the Wonder World theme park, assume that guy's identity, and then rent a car in Detroit, halfway across the country, with this guy's ID. Like that because that's the whole connection. That's other than the towels from Wonder World. That's what gets Eddie to go. Okay, like something's going on at Wonder World. Like, it, like it's a really like. I just don't get why act. Ellis does not need to be there. Like, there's no, no reason for that guy. <laughs> I mean, that's he never needed to be there. Hire your crew. Right. Your crew goes there and takes care of it. The only reason he's there is just to shoot Todd, so that we can that's create it. this personal reason for him to do it. Like, that's just a movie reason. But like in in, in actual terms, it's like, and this is the this is the inherent problem with a Beverly Hills Cop getting beyond the second movie. It's like, okay, we brought him back the second time, but we'll we'll have him shoot Bogomil. He Eddie Murphy's or Axel Foley's clearly a character that's got some type of like he he has mentors in his life that he respects a lot. He respects Bogomil because Bogomil goes out on a limb for him. He's like one of the only dudes, and you maybe bring race into it too. The fact that it's a white guy in an administrative role that went out on a limb for him, so he has a lot of respect for him. So when you get when you shoot that guy, there's a lot of reason for Eddie to go ser- uh, hunt down those guys that did it. So with this one, it's like, okay, we got to do the same thing, but we got to bring the guy here. It doesn't make it, he doesn't need to be since he's the guy running the whole thing. He could easily have his crew go do it themselves and bring all the crap back to him. But that's where it's like, okay, all right, all right, fine. Here's the funny thing about these. There's always this, there, there is this silent kind of subtle motif throughout the Beverly Hills Cop movies that talk about the problems and the, the administrative problems doing police work. Eddie Murphy's a street cop. He does things based on how he grew up on the street, which is, I'll do it when I want, when I want. I will get to the bottom of something. When he goes to Beverly Hills, what does he find out? There's procedures. There's always procedures. There's things you have to do first before you go nab the bad guy. They 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 up the ante in the second movie because now you have a chief of police that wants to dictate everything himself. And at this point, like, it's not really allowing anybody below him to do anything. So you're creating, again, that administrative administrative conflict. In this third movie, they go, they take it sideways a little bit. It's like, okay, first scene, we got to take this chop shop down. SWAT team's on the way. Nah, dog. No SWAT team. The, which 100% leads to why Inspector Todd gets kills, because Axel is too prideful to call in the SWAT team doing the correct procedure to take down this chop shop. What really bothers me the most is that that's a that's an excellent thing to set up in one of these movies. You hadn't done this. Where now Foley is kind of responsible for Inspector Todd dying. But that doesn't really seem to hang on throughout the rest of the movie. And then they do the most incredible thing ever, branching off from that first scene. Around halfway through the movie, okay, we've got the van. The van is at the beach. And Billy being this this gonzo character that he is now being you know he's the guy who, who 
looks at the jurisdictions and he figures out who to what resources to maneuver here or there. He basically calls in everybody to take down a van. And what it happens, there's nothing in the van, and Billy gets hit hard on the administrative end because it's like, dude, you didn't need to call all those people in. It's an excellent reflection, or it's this it I say excellent, it's excellent at the same time, it's weird. It's this callback to the first scene where it's like, you didn't call people in when you needed them. And this time you called them in, but there was too many people. So it's like, okay, third act. We got to solve this. We've got to do something about this. Where Foley has to have his Poe Dameron moment from Last Jedi where it's like, nope, can't do this, man. Turn the ships around. And they never do it. They Like, Eddie never, like, Axel Foley never really has to come full circle with what the initial inciting incident was in the first act. In the first scene. And that's that's a real bummer. It's a real bummer for him and for the audience, I think. That's true. I never I never looked at it that way with um, with it being his fault. Oh, yeah, because if, yeah, if, if he had just called SWAT, yeah, that would have probably solved the problem right there. And we'd have a 10-minute movie. But still, like that's an arc for him to, to deal with. And, I mean, him speaking to Todd's wife and that whole bit, like, yeah. Yeah, that, I think that that's probably a missed opportunity. Um, that's that's good. Uh, the supporting cast. So uh, Bronson Pinchot comes back, and it's funny because I, when I watch this movie, it's like, oh man, like they gave him a nice chunk, and then I go back and watch the first movie that he was in, and he's he really doesn't do anything <laughs> like he's got like one, one little, like maybe 22nd bit of dialogue with Eddie Murphy. And then he's gone. And this movie, like, cause as much as I, I mean, I'll just say it, I do like this movie as much as I do though. Uh, you could remove most of this scene that he has with Bronson Pinchot and it really wouldn't matter. Um, he does nothing and, in this movie except give him that gun to use he gives him the in gun. that scene. That's it. He gives, yeah, that's really that, true. That's really all he does. And, Granted, uh, I love that because this is one of this is one of my favorite guns in all of movies. This thing is absolutely insane. I, I, I love the way it's described to the the Annihilator 2000. It's it's for the upper income urban survivalist. Like and yeah, like Axel's like, oh, there's no way you're selling this thing, and that's like it's L.A. Of course, I'm selling this thing. I, like big people are insane out here. Like that makes that that's that's great like it, it just reminds me of a gun that you find in like a duke nukem game i mean it has a microwave a cd player a rocket launcher like this thing's insane and and that's really one of my favorite scenes in the movies when he actually uses it because it's like oh man oh the movie's being funny again you know because like, eddie's it's weird to hear john landis say that eddie was trying not to be funny and yet eddie does do those little things that we like him to do you know like, like just with his like reaction shots which is fun to watch. Um, John Saxon, who I think is one of the stranger casting choices. I wouldn't think he would be in a movie like this, but uh, it's he's one of those actors. I'm always happy to see him like doing something. Like he's always reliable and he's really good. And and it really seems like he's the real bad guy for a while because because he's the one running the operation. But he tends to, he tends to take a secondary role. Um, then there's this, the guy that I always am like, oh, look, it's not Lance Henriksen um, playing Agent Fulbright. And this is probably my least favorite character in the movie, uh, simply because I, I truly do feel like there's, a, there's an entire scene missing from the final cut of this movie because all of a sudden Foley realizes that 
this guy that's been stopping him on a jurisdictional level from from halting the, this crime ring has actually been working with them all along. And he's the last one that gets killed at the end and fully saying, oh, I found out another guy who was in on it. And, and it's just like the audience. You, know, you just sit back and go, wait, what? Three villains. Like they, this movie gives you three principal villains. Like, and, and it, it's too much. Yeah. It is. Like it's, 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 it's not a problem for him to come across somebody who's going to give him some pushback. Uh, like Hector Elizondo gives him pushback, but I mean, Hector Elizondo is basically on the same level of police as Axel Foley is, you know, but, but like someone who actually has authority an authoritative figure. And that's another thing too, since you pointed out how weird it was that Ellis DeWald would be in Detroit. How weird is it that Fulbright's in Detroit? Right. I mean, and this I mean, is a rewrite. This now, is a rewrite. <laughs> the only thing that the only thing that's reasonable about that is the Secret Service, a hundred percent, is all about knocking out counterfeit money. So they sniff out this stuff. That that is true. But the, but they're located in 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 uh, Beverly Hills. Dude, I you know, just a no joke. They just so happen to be located where Wonderworld is. <laughs> true story with this though. At the movie theater, we got a fake fifty once. And within a week, okay, okay, yeah. we had a call from the Secret Service, like a Secret mm. Service person, like investigating it. Now, I'm sure a lot of these, like, they don't really go anywhere. But their whole thing is if basically in real life sniff out what this movie has, like an Ellis DeWall type of person that's just churning this stuff out. So I I got the premise of bringing in the Secret Service as this other part of it. But, man, just the, the, the way he just, all right, we're just going to flip him heel at the end. Okay. Yeah. It's so out of nowhere. Well, like he kills John Saxon. Um, you know, he's like, "Oh, we've been waiting for." You. Oh God! Oh, oh, oh! And it's just like, well, a miss. It becomes a horror movie for a second, you know, because it's from the cameraman's perspective <laughs> that he gets killed. And it's like, what? I feel like that was just something that they were just they just filmed it. And they're like, we'll answer this later, you know, because there are times in the movie where it feels like Hector Elizondo is going to turn out to be the bad guy. Yeah, because like, he's like just, little, just yeah, he's all about like I love me Ellis DeWald, man. I just want to give him big yeah, hugs all like, the time. This is my retirement plan. Like you're screw, you're screwing with my pension plan, and I, I I'm willing to bet that that was in the draft at some point, and they just decided not to do it. Um, I will say though, like other than the the spider sequence, like the one sequence that I've always loved, it's just it's so good and it's pure for me at least, pure Beverly Hills Cop is that award ceremony sequence. Uh, where Billy and Axel, like it's really the it's the scene right after they they, they see Bronson Pinchot, and it's great because Billy, I love this is what I love about his character. He just he doesn't believe Axel at this point. He tells him not to do it. He just hides. And the second Axel punches Ellis DeWald and gets into it with everybody, Billy immediately abandons his hiding spot and jumps on stage and starts you know getting involved in the fight, even though like like this is like risking his job. Like this is. This is a great example of 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 his friendship uh, or the way at least that he looks at Axel, that he just like he doesn't believe him, but he instinctly trusts him. And Timothy Card, I always love the way he delivered that line through his teeth about killing his uh, killing Axel's boyfriend. Oh, man, like that used to just piss me off. And the one thing I will say about the scene that's a little strange, they kind of overdo this because. Ellis is getting like this humanitarian award or something or like for, like for, for how great he is. And this is the classic, Oh, the villain's not who you think it is. Like the, the like this, this, this guy that you love and adore and that does all this charity work is actually an awful human being. And they, the movies tend to, especially movies like Beverly Hills cop three tend to what a good guy he is 
for his cover a lot harder than they need to. Like, what was that? Like, they surrounded him at that table with all those orphan children. <laughs> like, yeah. That scene always cracked me up. <laughs> Just like, what? Like, this is a little unnecessary. Um, and you're right, though. Like, Beverly Hills Cop movies are very interesting because I think this movie isn't that much different from the other two in terms of a tonal inconsistency. Because as, as funny as the other two movies are, I still, to this day, hate watching the scene where in the first movie where Axel's friend gets killed by um, Jonathan Hanks. Like, the way he lifts his head and then just shoots it. It always bothered me. I hate it. But Gamil, I've, I've, got, I've come around to watching him get shot, and I think that's simply because he survived it. But, yeah, um, yeah. yeah like, there's, there's a real meanness to some of this stuff. Like, the way that he shoots Todd in the beginning of 3, like, he, sh- he shoots him once, and then he shoots him twice, just for the hell of it. And it's just like, uh, you know, yeah. just to yeah. feel right. And um, and the way that DeWald shoots Uncle Dave, like, like oh, just yeah. like, yeah, we're just going to shoot an old man. Like, that seems great. You don't really know what he's doing or where he's going, but like, to, and they couldn't have really cast a better actor for that other than maybe um, Roy Wally from Vacation. You know, oh, we need a sweet old man, you know? And this is the guy who actually voices Scrooge McDuck. But, uh, you know, playing this Walt Disney type character. I remember reading that Landon said that his favorite part about this movie was creating this theme park's characters. And I always thought he did a pretty decent job with that, like with Okie Dokie. And I remember that theme song, which I always liked that, that Wonder World theme song. I just found out that that was written by the Sherman Brothers. Yeah. Like yeah. that had to be a chunk of the budget, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah, to get a hold of them. Yeah. Um, John Landis, uh, he has a very specific style in a lot of his movies and a lot of it's here it's one of my favorite things about watching his movies is that he's the only director i really know that loves to do cameos of of with directors you know like there's so many directors in his movies that he just kind of throws in like steven spielberg is famously in blues brothers and stuff like that i mean this movie is just filled with people i mean that's get george lucas he's in 1994 he's there and he gets like ray harryhausen and arthur hiller I think John Singleton's yeah. my favorite is the firefighter. John Singleton. I never noticed it before until this watch. I was like, holy, holy shit, that's John Singleton. You know, because what had Singleton done at that point? Just Boys in the Hood? Um, like, he'd done Boys so. in the Hood. Yeah. Yeah, but that was in 91. But I was like, that's really cool that he grabbed Singleton. You know, like, that's a great thing that, that John Landis does uh, in his movies that, I, that I've always been a fan of. Um, he also does a callback in this movie to blues brothers during the truck sequence you when the cops exit their air truck uh you can hear them saying hot 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 which <laughs> that was a, a huge thing in blues brothers um i'll tell you what i always thought was interesting is so after uncle dave gets shot i was wondering if you noticed this after uncle dave gets shot there's an apb put out for axel foley and axel walks by these two cops in the hospital, these two white cops, and they hear the APB, and and the only the only thing that's really said is, uh, yeah, there's been a shooting, Uncle Dave. The suspect is an African American male. And before that, this before this person's voice even says male, those two guys look at each other and dart towards Eddie Murphy. Yeah, I bet that's a Rodney I, King or L.A. riots. Maybe it is. Yeah, because I mean, there are there is a, an L.A. riot joke. I actually love the automated voice message uh, scene where Eddie drives up and has to listen to 
what basically amounts to what you'd probably expect in LA, except for maybe like the homeless people on your lawn bit. But like if, if you need the riot rumor hotline, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah, I just thought that was because that, that once again, it's like, is this movie trying to say something about, you know, LA riots? Because the one thing that's always fascinating about Beverly Hills Cop is that it, and not on the surface level. And this is as a franchise, not on the surface level, but maybe a little deeper. Race is never really an issue in these movies. Uh, the the only thing that I remember that really stuck out for me is the Jenny character from the first one, uh, Axel's like friend that he meets uh, at the art gallery, like that he went back years with a white woman, and it always seemed to me like they like they were romantically involved or they should end up together at the end of the movie, and it just never happens because it's 1984, right? right. Yeah, you know, like they, they you have to dig for that, but it's like Axel's never. He's never like hit on for his race. He's never hit on for being black. Not like Reggie Hammond was in 48 Hours, where it's a big deal, you know. Which was only two years before. Right. So, like to, to have that little line about I was an African American male. Oh, it must be that guy. You know, it's I always thought that was weird. But um, so we talked about how this was probably in the decline, you know, not 90s decline of Eddie Murphy's career. I mean, and it continued, man. Um, because I believe he followed after this movie, which was supposed to be a big hit, wasn't a hit, wasn't a hit at all. Um, he he followed it up with Vampire in Brooklyn. Yeah. And oh, man, that's a one and done. And it wasn't until 1996, uh, the year after that, where he finally found basically what amounted to his second career, uh, comedy, true comedy, like no with no action, uh, with Nutty Professor. And that gave him an at least on life for about 10 years. But I, I, I remember reading stories like Bronson Pinchot told this story once about how he would find Eddie on set of Beverly Hills Cop 3, like sitting in a corner, like crying because he th- thought his career was going down the tubes. And like I said earlier, I mean, do you remember that David Spade bit from uh, from Saturday Night Live where? Oh, yeah. yeah oh my God, I think that was the same year where <laughs> David Spade's like, oh, look, mom, a falling star. Hmm. And it's like, and Eddie Murphy's like, mother, I created Saturday Night Live. Like I, like I saved that show. Right. You should be on your knees and this and that. So it's not like Eddie doesn't have a uh, an ego or anything. Um, Eddie Murphy's own thoughts on the film I always thought were interesting. There was a documentary on the Beverly Hills Cop three DVD I remember watching, and this is one of those things. And I, I know hate that you this. Probably I know exactly what you're going to say. You know what I'm about to say? Yep. Yeah, this is one of those things that actors say when there's a new sequel out. I, this is what made me turn on Bruce Willis hard when Die Hard 4 came out because he said this about all of the Die Hard movies. Eddie Murphy was really just talking about the second movie. It's this phrase of, well, with this installment, we're, we're really trying to get back to the core of the character. Yeah, It's the worst. I hate this stuff. It's the worst because I'm like, yeah, Beverly Hills Cop 2, for me, doesn't hold a candle to the first one, but it's still Axel Foley. Like, like, are you telling me that you don't you don't like Beverly Hills Cop 2? Like, Eddie, like, what was so wildly different about your character in that movie as opposed to the first movie? It's a, it's a stupid, cheap thing to say to promote your current movie, yeah. you know? And like I said, this is a very Bruce Willis-esque thing to do. And... I, I, I really lose a lot of respect for actors that do this, that, that basically shit on their own work. Because Beverly Hills Cop 2 is a loved movie. 
it's one of my favorite Tony Scott movies. And for him to insinuate that, that the previous movie was no good, like, uh, so he, so Beverly Hills Cop three com, is about to come out. And I believe Eddie said, what, this, this is better than the second one. Infinitely better. Infinitely, infinitely better. That was the quote. Infinitely better. Terrible. And then 10 years later, he pulled us Lester Stallone after Rocky five came out and went, no, no, that was, uh, I, I believe it was on inside the actor's studio, which I've seen this one. Yeah. Where he said that wasn't a good cop. Movie. Oh, and then oh, this it, is, it's, it's good. I love the quote. It's like, oh, go ahead. it's venom. It's the movie was atrocious and such a disgrace that the character was kind of banished for a while from Hollywood. He said he felt the f- third film did not reveal enough of the edginess of Axel that was present in the first two films. He also said that was he hoped, his fault. Right. He also said he hopes to return the edgy qualities to the character when he reprises the role next time and is going to pay more attention to the development of the project and its quality. Oh, give me a break. I still think that's a line um, because basically there. So that was like 12 years ago. There has not been a Beverly Hills Cop 4, even though it's really weird because these stories come out about it. These ideas. But the idea that I absolutely just was mortified by was that the movie starts with with Billy Rosewood killing himself, jumping off of a building, you know, and and, and we're going to bring in a new partner for Axel. And it's going to be a big movie star, uh, like someone like The Rock or something. And Brett Ratner is going to direct it. And this movie has not happened, even though I believe I've read a couple of years ago that they filed for for um, tax incentives in Beverly Hills for it. Kind of like they did with... Um, no, 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 no. They did that for Detroit. They filed for him in Detroit. And the movie still hasn't happened. There was a failed pilot TV show. Oh, the pilot. Where it's, we oh, get to see is, Axel Fo- It's awesome. God, this Do you remember so, this? Yeah, because yeah, uh, yeah. Murphy tells a story about... I love how he tells a story about this, that um, when they put in the test audience, like, you know, like, they... they this is one of the things they do with these things where, like, you basically have your little, like, Jeopardy clicker. And, like, anytime you see something you like, you click. And so they figure out, like, what's good and what's not in these shows. So then, like, that pilot runs and they get to the Eddie Murphy part where he's kind of, like, chief of police. You know, he kind of comes in, does his, like, you know, few bits. The thing's clicking through the roof. It's going nuts. So the one of the execs was like, maybe we could bring you in at the end. You know, you do the little laugh you know and say I'm back and Eddie's like I'm not doing that I'm not doing that the problem was like they, no. they figured out that like you can't do a, a Beverly Hills cop show that only sometimes has Axel Foley you can't it won't no, work it's ridiculous it's ridiculous like let's talk about that for a little bit okay so like this is one of the, my fascinations with Hollywood is why does every iconic character from the 80s and 90s not only have a son but a son that does a very similar line of work that their father does what, like, like what, what, why can't Axel Foley's son be like an auto mechanic or a grocer or a dentist? Like, no, he has to be a cop. It's the son of this, the son of that. It's, it's garbage. And not to mention the fact that this, since it's Paramount owned, this was going to air on CBS. Do you really want to see Axel Foley on CBS? Like CBS All Access, that's different. But that was, you know, that's a new invention. Uh, I believe this pilot was filmed for or five years ago yeah. and no one's ever seen it no. and thank god i'm so glad that this thing got axed before they could do anything with it and because that way you know we can say that it doesn't exist but now i think eddie did the right thing by by not by not doing that oh there's also the david letterman bit mm-hmm. I, I i never knew this happened for some reason dave letterman had eddie murphy on uh several years ago 
and he read a list of Eddie's uh, films. And I don't know why, but he said Beverly Hills Cop 3. And it got a, a really good applause from the audience. Which I wouldn't expect that, but it got a decent applause. Like, oh yeah, we love Beverly Hills Cop 3. And Eddie like shut that down. <laughs> and, said, and said, no, no, no. He's like, no, that wasn't good. You know, it's just like, <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. You know, um, I was thought that was strange and, and the fact that this movie hasn't come along this fourth movie which i mean i don't even at this point i really don't care because it's like it doesn't seem like they want judge reinhold in it it's going to be marketed towards a younger audience which is hilarious because eddie murphy has got to be in his mid-50s up to 60 by now and yeah if it's beverly hills got it's, it's something shane black once said when he was talking about lethal weapon when they were gonna gonna bring in the son of Riggs or something he goes that's bullshit if you're going to make that movie, if you're going to make a, a something like Lethal Weapon or Beverly Hills, have the people from that movie, from the originals in your new movie. Because, like, and that's the problem with the new Die Hard coming out. Bruce is only going to be in half of it. I, I, I don't understand. Like, uh, it's funny, funny you say this, man. It's so, so hard to get right. So, so it's, I've, I was curious, like, what's been the, like, has there been anything with Beverly Hills Cop 4 in the news? And it's like, no, but we got this little tidbit for you. Eddie's Eddie's signed on to do a remake. You excited? Grumpy, grumpy old yeah. man. What a crock of crap! Get out it's of a here. Bunch of, it's, it's bullshit. Get out. It's shit because, like, because I'm trying to figure out logistically. Because that's true. I read that the other day. I'm trying to figure out like how this is going to work. So Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, I believe, were in their 70s when they made Grumpy Old Men. Eddie Murphy's not old. He's 55 maybe. And not to mention the fact that Eddie Murphy has. A- aged incredibly well like really well he doesn't look that much different to me than than the way he looked in beverly hills cop 3 and that was almost 25 years ago what are they gonna do are they gonna put him in age-old makeup and team him up with martin lawrence again like at the end of life or arsenio hall if they sew up their differences oh man yeah that would be something uh don't get me wrong i think uh, a remake of Grumpy Old Men is a decent idea, but Eddie, like Eddie Murphy, like, and and it's not even like with the current way things are going now in Hollywood, which, well, um, like let's do a black version of this or a female version of that, which is fine. I mean, it's not my preference, but it's fine. Why Eddie Murphy? Like, like there are plenty of like old black actors you can do this with. Like, get Morgan Freeman. Like, like that, yeah. that seems right itself. Yeah, you know. Like, 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 look at Denzel. Denzel's like sixty. He doesn't look old at all. No, not He's at all. Mm-hmm. Making Equalizer movies. No. So, Eddie, Eddie's career. I mean, I don't. I can't even think of the last movie he did that I liked. And and it's and it's not like he doesn't keep cranking these things out. It's just that uh, his movies don't make money anymore, and they're not on the radar. I mean, he lived in animation for a long time, um, and it really, really is a shame because it really seemed like. Uh, about four or five years ago. No, no, I'm sorry. It's been longer. It's been about eight years. He was on the verge of a major comeback. Uh, I remember he had Tower Heist come out, which I still never saw, but they were saying that he was going to host the Oscars, which is like half of the Oscars is a stand-up routine. So are we going to see Eddie Murphy do a stand-up routine for, for the first time in like 20 years? And that ended up not happening because Brett Ratner was accused of uh, sexual something before the Me Too movement, and he he was sent packing. And this was Eddie. So, 
we keep getting these false starts with Eddie Murphy, and it's really frustrating because he might be my favorite SNL cast member ever. I, he was just everything he did, I liked. And looking back on his film, it's funny to me because like he did Naughty Professor, and and it's like oh he's gonna go into comedy. Well, he did have one like action movie left over that I feel like he shot earlier and it got released later, which was Metro, which definitely feels more like a Beverly Hills Cop movie than really even maybe even the third one. But um, no, so that's where the series stands. So like the budget, fifty million, seventy million, who knows? The rumor is that Paramount even shut down production of this movie yeah. at some point. Uh, to get this budget under control, and it's like, well, what'd you do? Threaten Eddie, like <laughs> saying, like, no, no, we're only going to pay you twelve million, you know. And either way, whatever the budget was between those two figures, the movie only made one hundred and nineteen million uh, worldwide. Now, to put that in perspective, ten years er- earlier, the original Beverly Hills Cop made about two hundred and fifty million domestic alone, and then the third, uh, the second movie made, I believe, one hundred and fifty million. So then you get the third movie, which can't even touch that worldwide, let alone domestic. Domestic, I think, was a measly $40 million. But, I mean, it's hard to say. It's hard to say, like, because I, like, as much as I, as much as I do like this movie, I don't think it's the one that I would have made personally. Like, what's your idea for Beverly Hills Cap 3? Oh, um, it goes to a theme park. I would have loved if it was a movie studio. It's something going like the cover. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I think it would have been awesome. Been a lot of it's fun. It's kind of what they did with Crocodile Dundee three. Uh, like if you had done something like, like the, that's the whole cover for whatever for whatever the the problem is, whatever the scheme is, the cover is the is the is the film studio and and it would be funny because now instead of Eddie riffing on. Beverly Hills cops because they're so uptight and administrative. He's he's riffing on movie cops because they're not authentic and they do all this other stuff. It would have been a, been something different. I mean, I have per I mean, in the end man, I personally would have would never have made a third one. Would never made. It. I don't I mean, mm-hmm. if I mean if a gun to my head like, you know, you can come up with some ideas, sure, but it's just tough. I mean, unless you unless you moved it somewhere else, which then negates your title or you haven't moved there, I don't know. I never understood why they didn't do that. You know, like there's that we talked about it earlier, but there's that one scene in the second movie where there's all four of them, Bogomil, Foley, Taggart, and Rosewood, and they're they're in a picture together on a fishing trip. And I always remember like reading books from film critics that pointed that out specifically and said that that was one of the worst things that they could have done. Yeah, I, I remember Leonard Moulton's review, which I mean that's not gospel by any means but he said like these characters that were so fun and so dynamic in the first movie are talking about uh, a failed fishing trip in the second movie because it's the first sequel and yet it feels like i'm watching the 50th with a line like that and uh it's i forget what my point was (laughs) Uh, but um i I, yeah what did you say before i started talking about that because i completely i I was saying like you either have to find a reason for him to get. Oh, to, that's it. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Why didn't he ever move there? You know, it's like, how can a cop have time to, to go visit Beverly Hills to see his friends? You know, like it's it's weird. And why wouldn't he just move there? Like he clearly likes Beverly Hills in L.A. Maybe maybe he can't afford it, but I'm sure Rosewood could get him a job. 
at the uh, at the LAPD. Yeah, yeah, definitely. it's yeah. I don't understand why he still is in Detroit. It, it just it doesn't. It it seems like he always can't wait to get out of there because that's always another thing with Beverly Hills Cop is okay. How long is he going to take him to get out of Detroit? You know, like I mean, in the first movie and maybe even the second movie, it's necessary that he's still there. I love like one of my favorite things about that the Axel Foley character is that his background was criminality. He was a criminal who became a cop, and that's why he's so smart. Yeah. And, and that's what's so fun about the Axel Foley character. He really is one of the great movie cops. And I remember Eddie talking about it uh, many years ago, about the first movie, about how before then there wasn't really a cop that made jokes or a cop that was funny. It was deadly serious. It was Dirty Harry. It was Charlie Varick. Hell, it was Jack Cates in 48 Hours. And then Eddie Murphy came along and that kind of changed the game, that it was okay to be funny in, in action movies and to be purposely funny. The banana in the tailpipe bit is legendary. I, I love that first movie. I must have watched that thing on repeat. Um, but Beverly Hills Cop 3, it is what it is. Like I'm always fascinated with the reaction to it uh, because there are definitely things about this movie that don't work. But me personally, I find more that do. Uh, do you have anything else to add before no. we rate this thing? No, I think I'm... What do you give it, Will? Four. Four? <whistles> oh, that's low. <laughs> okay, all right, four, all right. I give this an eight. This is the biggest divide we've ever had. Um, I will say that I do genuinely think that this is, for me, a better movie than the second movie. I do like this movie more. But it's not infinitely better because there are days where I like, God, do I really like it more than the second one? Because the second one is so much fun. But there's I find the second movie, even in its confusion, to be a little bit too similar to the first movie, which is hard to do with the plot like this. You know, it's like I'm amazed that the second movie was Rosewood and Taggart have to go to Detroit. You know, it's like, well, let's you know, like do that Crocodile Dundee thing. Right. right. But. But um, it's unfortunate because as, as much as I do like this movie, I would have gladly traded it in for a movie that was better recepted and, and, and also would have led to more sequels because I lo- love this character. Uh, it's always, always was a favorite of mine. So a four and an eight. Well, I think that wrapped it up. I think that wraps up Beverly Hills Cop 3. Um, join us next month, next month, the month of June. Uh, we will be looking at another action movie but one that was a little bit more well received than beverly hills cop 3 to say the least we're going to be looking at yonder bond's speed in the meantime check us out on twitter at real change pod i am at c underscore stabs and i am at william rinkin 83 and we'll see you for our next episode of june 1994 speed